Well, as we continue our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, it's it's good to be reminded of the greater context. Well, the context of Colossians, if you remember, is that the church at Colossae was actually a relatively new church that had been planted by a man named Epaphras, who likely became a believer and came to know the Lord through Paul's ministry on his third missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. And so now some time has passed uh, in Colossae and there was a false teaching that began to kind of make its way and make its rounds and was attempting to kind of influence the Colossians. And so uh, this was so important that Epaphras ends up going to Paul a thousand miles away in Rome in order to get his advice. After spending some time with Paul, he ends up coming back to Colossae with letter in hand. And the letter to the Colossians is Paul's attempt to address this false teaching. Okay, that's what this is going on here. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 24 of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body. That is the church. Of which I became... A minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Pray with me. Father, your word is food for famished ones. It's freedom for the slave. It is riches for the needy soul. We ask now that you would speak to us through your holy word and speak through me. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. With uh, only a, a mere four years of parenting under my belt, I have to say that my appreciation for my parents has grown dramatically. As many of you know, parenting can be one of the most simultaneously joyous thing in the world and the most difficult and challenging things as well. You know, in all the books that you read to prepare yourself, no one tells you that your personal space, your alone time was a luxury. Uh, No one tells you that. No one tells you that uh, you're going to have to maybe pinch pennies for preschool and maybe take up new, uh, more work in order to send your children to preschool only for them to miss half the days because they're sick. No one 
tells you that you may put all this effort and energy into planning a wonderful vacation for your children to a place like Disney World, and they are only going to be miserable and not enjoy it the entire time, right? No one tells you all this stuff, right? But this is the reality of parenting. I I don't know that last one. I know that through, through... through trusty word. So I believe it's true. Obviously, as a child, we don't always recognize this, right? We don't recognize the great sacrifice of our parents. And so as I've parented, I'm, I'm, I've begun to reflect on the ways that my, my parents have, have sacrificed for me over the years as I have grown up. And uh, one of the things I, I think about is my dad, right? And uh, who... Uh, grew up in Connecticut and who um, uprooted himself from his family, his friends, his work, in order to follow my mom and I, who they were in the process of getting a divorce, all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. Because for him, it was important to be close to me. It was important for him to be involved in my day-to-day life. It was important that he was a present dad. So he made the sacrifice. So for him, this meant sacrificing his family and friends and starting over in a new place. I think about my mom, and it's amazing for me to think about all the ways in which she sacrificed for me. Uh, I think about the, the times that she had multiple jobs, right, in order to not only just pay and provide my basic needs, like food on the table or clothes on my back, but even the extra stuff, the things like being able to, to participate on a travel soccer team and travel all throughout Florida to go do all these different tournaments or to attend these specific camps or, or whatnot. I, I think about the sacrifice my mom makes made when we, during my middle school years, when she would drive uh, an hour every single day out of her way in order to take me to uh, the, the best school district in Jacksonville, Florida, so that I could receive the best possible education, uh, so that I could have the best opportunities for my future. These are all ways in which parents sacrifice. And now, obviously, you don't have to be a parent to, to fully understand this, right? We all know what it means to sacrifice for something because it's important, Because it's worth it. It is worth sacrificing for in order to do it. We do this all the time. Well, I think in our passage that there's something like this going on. Paul is, is, there's something that's so important to Paul that he is willing to lay it all on the line. He's willing to sacrifice. He is willing to even die for the sake of them knowing and understanding this thing that he's trying to communicate to them. Okay? He wants it. It's so important. It's critical. Okay? Let's look at our, our passage. Do you, uh, verse 24. If you remember last week, David preached, and he preached about uh, this beautiful passage that we have in Paul's letter here in verses 15 through 23. And it's like, it all, it's all about Christ's sufficiency, that he is, he is everything, that he is very God of very God, right? He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. He made peace by the blood of his cross, right? Like this is, it was all about, it was very Christ-exalting, almost in poetic form. Well, now in verse 24... Paul's going to say this. Now I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Okay, so Paul wants us to know a few things here. One, that he's suffering, and he's suffering with joy. Why would he suffer with joy? Well, he's suffering for joy, not because he just likes to suffer and because it's fun. He's suffering because it's for the Colossians' sake. It's for their good. It's for their benefit that he does so. Okay? And he wants to highlight this. He wants them to know this. 
Okay, he continues in verse 24. For in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, on the surface, this seems to be that Paul is indicating that somehow maybe Jesus' sacrifice was like deficient. Right, like that he didn't, he only got us most of the way there, but he didn't finish it. And somehow like Paul picked up the baton and he like took it the rest of the way. That's, I don't think that's what's saying here. Obviously the, the larger context tells us that and all of scripture tells us that that's not what's going on here. What I think's going on here is that Paul is actually referring to this period of time that's between Christ's first coming and his second coming, where God has ordained a certain amount of suffering for Paul and for his saints to endure, as Christ endured. Okay, this is this period of time. And so Paul is pointing out his suffering, not as like a, a proof, not as like a, a one-upmanship of like, look at me, look how great I am, but in order to kind of grab their attentions, to kind of grab them by the lapel, so to speak, uh, and get their attention, right? Paul wants them to know, I, like, I, Paul, I'm not like skipping around uh, a field of daisies, right? I'm, I am suffering on your behalf, okay? I want you to know that. I want you to understand that, right? This is serious, it's like having a, a high schooler, right, who you've sacrificed for in so many ways, your time, your finances, and everything else, right, uh, to give the best possible education, and they wake up exhausted the morning of the ACT or SAT, and you want to, because they spent the whole night playing video games, right, and you want to shake them because you want them to realize how important this is. Like, this is the difference in how well they do on this test and exam determines whether they get into the school of their dreams or not, right? Like, they want them to know that, like, this is important. We've been working towards this. Everything you've been doing is coming down to this, and you're going to just blow it, right? That's what he's trying. It's important. He wants him to see that. He's highlighting that. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's highlighting that his suffering to show that his, the thing that he's telling about is important, we're not talking about just getting into a dream school. We're talking about life or death. We're talking about eternity with God, right? This is what he's talking about. And this is why Paul frames the passage in the way that he does. You know, he first begins by talking about his sufferings in verse 24. Well, just a few verses later, he's going to refer to his sufferings again in verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And then even in verse 5, he kind of alludes to it. He says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit. Right? The reason why Paul is not able to hand deliver this letter to them is because right now, in this very moment, as this letter is being read, is he is right now under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. Right? Like, that's what's going on here. Like, this is that stick. He's, he wants them to get this. And then verse 4 is going to tell us why. Verse 4 is going to explain why he's stressing his suffering so much and why it's so important. Verse 4 says, I say all of this, right? Everything I've written up into the letter to now, I'm saying all of this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here for the first time in the letter to the Colossians, Paul is referencing this false teaching, these false teachers that were seeking to influence and infiltrate the church and delude them with arguments. 
All the theology up into this point, the high, especially the high Christology of verses 15 through 23, that poetic stuff, all of that was meant to show that and lead to, was for the reason of not deluding them so that they wouldn't be deluded or led astray from plausible arguments. Clearly, Paul was concerned that the Colossians were going to be led astray into falsehood. He wants them to know that there is nothing more important than knowing the riches of Christ, the mystery revealed, the hope of glory, the one in whom redemption and forgiveness of sins comes. He wants them to know this because of the potential of real danger that is knocking on the door. In verse 3 of chapter 2, he says this, that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of it. All-consuming. If you have Christ, you have everything. That's what he's trying to tell them. He wants them to get this. That's what Paul is trying to say in this section of the letter. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this information? What do, how is this supposed to motivate us? Well, I think Paul here is trying to highlight something that's really important. He's trying to say that the truth about who Christ is matters. Who you say he is matters. Understanding rightly who Christ is and what he has done is of utmost importance. To say it negatively, misunderstanding the person and work of Christ can have grave consequences. Okay, it's one of the highest importance that we study and know God's word. And this means even being familiar with the errors. Okay, there's an old adage that says that those who, who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Right, that's the, the adage, the old adage. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's actually nothing new under the sun. Errors are often repackaged and reissued at different points in time. And so I want to give us two examples here, two false teachings that were rejected by early church history because of the danger that they presented, okay? This is going to sound really teachy for a few moments, okay? But bear with me. This is really important, okay? Uh, this kind of takes me back to uh, the trials of ordination, okay? The years, so in our denomination, uh, it's so important for your ministers to go through this grueling process of exams. So we are um, examined by written exams, by oral exams on all kinds of issues, church history, uh, church government, theology, sacraments, and so forth. All these different things. And we're supposed to know all of it and can be asked any of it, right, at different times. It's the reason why in my, my office there's an entire drawer that is filled with notebooks of outlines and handouts and study questions on church history that I can't bear to get rid of because it was such a part of me for an entire year of my life, right? My wife and I uh, literally walked miles in my neighborhood studying flashcards, uh, talking about Athanasius and all these other random people, okay? So all these things. So this is, and the reason why we did it is because it was important. It was Important that we knew these things, okay? So the first thing, the first teaching I want us to hear is this. It was the heresy of Arianism, okay? I'm going to be very brief and very succinct. I'm doing that on purpose because I don't want to lose you. In short, it was a denial of Jesus' divinity. So the heresy of Arianism was a denial of Jesus' divinity. Sometime in the 4th century, a man named Arius was reading through his Bible, okay? Like you and I read through our Bible. And he came across a passage in the Gospels that talked about Jesus growing up, talked about him getting tired. 
It talked about him uh, not knowing things like when his second coming was to come. And so he wrongly concluded that Jesus must not be divine. Or that he must, uh, yeah, must not be divine. And so he made this conclusion that he said that therefore he must be more than man, but he's got to be less than God, right? If he can't know these things, as he gets tired, he's got to be less than God. Similarly, he reads passages like what we have in Colossians 1 that talk about him being the firstborn of all creation, right? And what he concludes from that is that Jesus must be the first created being. And so therefore he's not God, and right? He denies his divinity. Why is this dangerous? Why, is this, why was this rejected by the early church? Well, it was rejected by the early church because we need, Jesus needed the power of his divinity so that he could bear the full weight of God's wrath in his humanity and therefore successfully earn the forgiveness of sins, okay? In short, right, Jesus needed to have to be God in order to endure the wrath that you and I deserve so, he, so that he could accomplish salvation on your behalf, okay? If he wasn't divine, if he wasn't God, he couldn't do that, okay? And that's what we have. And just to prove that history tends to repeat itself, you find this false teaching actually in modern day Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? So this is something that's often taught. Secondly, the, second, the text, second heresy is this, docetism. In short, it's the opposite of the first one. So if the first one was a denial of Jesus' divinity, this one is a denial of his humanity, okay? Um, if, that, what is it? It's a false teaching that re- emerged in like the first, second century that said that Jesus only seemed or that he appeared to be um, a man, the reason was that for this was that it was, uh, it was closely tied and connected to this teaching of Gnosticism. You've heard David reference Gnosticism at different points uh, in the previous sermons. Gnosticism, one of the main tenets of Gnosticism is that material, physical stuff is bad and spiritual stuff is good. And so you can probably trace the, the logic here of how he gets here. Basically, if Jesus is a man and he's a physical being, right? That's bad. That's bad news. That doesn't go with his teaching. And so he has to, the way that they resolve this is that he's going to be, he's just going to, he seems or he appears to be um, uh, a man, right? And so they ultimately reject the, the humanity of Jesus. Okay, why was this rejected by the early church? Okay, I'm almost done with this little teaching part. Because Jesus, because God's justice required that Jesus possess a human nature in order to atone for human sins. Okay, in short, it means this. Only a human could represent another human. Jesus had to be fully human in order to die for your and I's sin, right? Do you see this? So his humanity and his divinity, his godness and his humanness were necessary, absolutely necessary for salvation, right? That's what we see taught in, first, in Colossians 1. Thus, if, if there's any denial of the Jesus of the scriptures, we lose, what, we, salvation isn't possible, right? That isn't there. It, doesn't, it, it makes it void. Okay, I'm done with the teaching part, so you can wake up. Um, this is important. This is practical, okay? And it's practical for a reason, um, it, it, because it's, it's really important that we know this stuff. Uh, now, I'm not necessarily worried about y'all... Um, falling into either of these two historical heresies. I'm not worried about you going to the Jehovah's Witness church down the road afterwards. Maybe you will, but I'm not necessarily worried about it. Um, I want to kind of take this point and drive it a little closer to home, okay? I want to get, I want to, I want to kind of get into your living room a little bit here, okay? 
Um, I'm going to give you one more example. It's a modern-day example. Uh, we can call this a modern-day lowercase h heresy, okay? Um, and I want to call this uh, what Jerry Bridges actually calls this performance Christianity, okay? In his book, he writes a book called The Discipline of Grace. And in it, he gives this helpful analogy of two days. There's a good day and a bad day, okay? And he, he talks about it in this way. So here, here's what he says. He says, consider two radically different days in your own life as a believer. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and you have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and you pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and you somehow sense the presence of God is with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. As you talk with the person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and, all, and to also work in your friend's heart. Okay, that's the first day. It's a good day spiritually. It's what we all strive for. It's what we all hope to, to live, it, live out. Well, there's a second day. It's the opposite. The opposite happens. He says this. You don't arise... The bad day is this, you don't arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you hit the snooze button and you go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have a quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down your breakfast and you rush off to your day's activities. You feel guilty about, your, about oversleeping and about missing your quiet time. And things generally just don't go, wrong, don't go right all day. You become more and more irritable all the day as the day wears on. And you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ. Okay, good day, bad day. Now he asks some probing questions. He asks this. He says, would you enter these two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God loves you and would work through you even on the bad spiritual day? If the answer is yes, then you are in good company. Um, we are all going to feel this way at different points in our, our walk, and our faith, right? And that doesn't mean that we're not true believers. However, if we were to fully lean into that belief, if we were fully to lean in the fact that God's blessing is dependent on my deeds and on my works and my behaviors and on my godliness, then we would be believing something other than the gospel. The benefit of Jerry Bridges' illustration is this, that it exposes the disconnect between what we believe and how we functionally live, okay? We may know what to say up here, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation, full stop, right? And this obviously doesn't mean that it's not important to, to works are not important, right? Of course, of course not. They don't save us, right? But grace is all that saves us. And so here, here's the thing. He, he ends up saying, but how we functionally live shows that we are what we are trusting in, namely our works, our good behaviors. If we believe that we are saved by good works, then we have a serious problem. We're not believing in the gospel. We are not saved by good works, but we are certainly saved to good works. Paul wants our theology and what we to believe about Christ and his works to get down deep in our bones. He wants us to know it intimately. He wants us to wrestle with it, to believe it with everything in us, right? This is why Paul writes and concludes, he says in verse 28 this, he says, him, Christ we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present Christ or present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil with all the work that Christ and God does in him, right? This is why he does what he does. He wants to present you and I mature in Christ. He wants us to know Christ and his gospel rightly, but he wants it to move down into our hearts and into our lives, how we live. One, uh, R.C. Sproul has a great quote. He says this, No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad theologians. So practically, this means for us, right, emerging ourselves in God's word. This means participating in a good Bible study. It means sitting under God's regularly preached word. It means spending private time reading through the scriptures. It means picking up a good systematic theology book. It means attending a Sunday school class where the confession is taught. And we do all this so that we can learn to rest in the full, complete works of Christ. And so this is Paul's charge for us. This is what he wanted the Colossians to get. He wanted them to lean into Christ, the one in whom all wisdom and knowledge is contained. He wanted them to, to, to lean into him, to submerge themselves in the teaching of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. For in him is the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, life, and salvation. And this is what he wants for you and I. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we... Father, we owe our entire lives to you for what you have done for us. Father, in Christ, we have every need of ours met. Lord, you have provided salvation. You've provided forgiveness of sin. You have provided righteousness. You have provided a remedy for the curse. And you have brought us into your very presence. Father, help us to rest into that. Help us to lean into that. Help us to study and reflect in it. Help it to, to go down into our very bones. May it not stay in our heads, but may it move into our, our heart and our hands. Because Jesus is everything. Lord, we thank you so much for him. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.